to the next chapter with Prim Saripapat. It's not the idea of deserving anything. It's the idea of I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to be as honest as I can in the work I'm doing. And I'm going to receive grace if it comes my way. Because life is unfair. Identities. Hey guys, welcome to the next chapter. I'm your host, Prim Saripapat. This week's guest is a trailblazer, an icon, a volleyball legend, fashion model, TV personality, New York Times bestselling author, wife, mother of three. She has and continues to do it all. She is Gabrielle Reese. Gabrielle, who typically goes by Gabby, as many of you know, admits she fell into volleyball. At 12, she was already six feet tall, and by 15, she was 6'3". With height and athleticism on her side, she went on to play volleyball at Florida State, where she would set school records in both solo blocks and total blocks, and became the Knowles' first ever volleyball player to be inducted into its Hall of Fame. After college, she played professionally for a number of years, as she became a two-time Offensive Player of the Year with the Women's Beach Volleyball League and won the first ever Beach Volleyball World Championships. She was also Nike's first ever female spokesperson and the first female athlete to design a shoe for Nike. In addition to her athletic accomplishments, yes, there's more, she also had a burgeoning career in modeling and entertainment, which actually began while she was in college. She was named one of the Wonder Women of Sport by Rolling Stone in 1989 and one of the five most beautiful women in the world by Elle magazine. She's also appeared on just about Every television network imaginable, from MTV to E! Entertainment to the Today Show and even movies. And to top it all off, she's married to an icon himself, one of the most prolific surfers of all time, Laird Hamilton. While Gabby's journey seems like quite the fairy tale, her upbringing was far from it. As a child, she moved multiple times and was under the care of multiple people. From California to Mexico to Long Island, West Indies, and Florida, the unpredictable nature of her childhood made her extremely self-reliant and adaptable. Her story is really fascinating. The moment she agreed to do this interview, I immediately hopped on a plane out to California because I knew I had to do this one in person. And to be completely honest, she's someone I really looked up to as a young female athlete growing up in the 90s. Gabby was part of a tremendous movement that helped redefine feminine beauty ideals. She made muscular athleticism not just acceptable, but desirable and beautiful. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Here we are at her house in Malibu. Ladies and gentlemen, Gabby Reese. Hey, Gabby. Hi. (laughs) It's so exciting to sit here with you. Thank you very much for opening your home. There's not a lot of people that would completely open their home to all of our cameras and us coming through. But your house seems to be one of those houses where there's just constantly people coming through. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, it's a home. That's what homes are. Well, not all homers are like that, though. Yeah, I think that's what homes are for. I think they're (laughs) meant for people to connect and get together and then disperse and connect and disperse. So thank you for driving up here and, and being here. No, it's it's beautiful up here in Malibu. With the, the open house, is that kind of an indication of your and, and your husband's personality a little bit about being 
kind of just open. Uh, you know, both Laird and I grew up on islands. Laird's from Hawaii and I grew up in the Caribbean. And I think that that is more of a representation of those types of cultures, which is that you share and exchange. And people have shown me great generosity as well as Laird when I was much younger. And, um, and I always say like I had several hard times as a young person and people, you know, opened their homes and gave me food and love. And I think that, um, once you experience that, I, I believe it's hard to remove yourself from that idea. And it doesn't mean certain days, like people are showing up and you're like, I always joke that we sit at my counter and that through the gate, cause everyone will come in and train and stuff. And you, and maybe you're not prepared, but it's just cause you're not prepared to see a bunch of people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But otherwise, um, I just think that's how I was raised. And, and it's a, it's a powerful source of, of energy and support that, um, is really valuable. As you know, this, this particular show is about life transitions and how athletes cope with various life transitions. And the majority of the interviews that I've, that I've conducted with athletes, a lot of it is focusing on something pivotal, significant, oftentimes around injury, mm-hmm. uh, during the career or how they pivot away from sport. From that but, identity. Yeah. And, but with you, I don't, you seem to be somebody who has those very seamless from transition to transition. I have a lot of fear. So I'm always transitioning way early. No, I'm, I, that, I'm, par- I'm partially joking. <laughs> well, I am and I'm not, you know, cause people have asked me this question quite a bit and I can, I can lay it out very, very simply for me personally and everyone is different. So, uh, I, you know, the way I grew up, one of my kind of chinks in my armor was I then started looking for stability. So like when I was at Florida state and I started modeling at 18, I bought a house at 19 in Tallahassee because I was like putting roots down and like very serious. And so sometimes when you're hardwired that way, you oftentimes look ahead. And the other thing that was in my corner was, believe it or not, the fact that I played professional beach volleyball, which is a very small platform from early on, you're pretty realistic about how far you can go. And that means if I'm being, if I'm being completely direct, you just see the ceiling quickly on at least the revenue that you can earn. So by the time I was, so I turned pro at 22, I had already played college ball and modeled. And that was, I modeled not because, oh, that was something that was like a lifelong dream. I was like, oh, that's an opportunity. And, um, it was incredible. You could travel and they paid you and it was great. And, um, and then when I turned professional, I thought, okay, so you're going to spend 85% of your time training and to be as good as you can be in volleyball. In the meantime, what else are you going to do? And so then I started doing TV and writing. And so what happens is simultaneously, you're developing that skill set. Where oftentimes when you're an athlete, especially if you're on a big juicy platform like the NBA or the women's tennis or anything like that, not to mention you're told every second of the day where to be and what to do so that when you do have free time, you're not going to sit there and go, oh, let me do other jobs. So volleyball in that way, even though like you don't maybe make it up as much up front, if you will, um, was great because you learned to hustle and you learned that there's a limitation early. So if you ask me about those transitions seamlessly, uh, I think it was due to that as the root. And then what you start to understand is you go, hey, I don't want to be any one thing. 
I don't want to be a volleyball player, just a volleyball player. I don't want to be just Laird's wife or just my kid's mom. Um, I'm me, a person, a human being first, then I'm a female, and then I'm all these other titles and identities. And how do I want to express myself as a person? And, um, and that just seems for me personally, it was just a really, um, it was a less frustrating way to go through life. Cause then you weren't like, Oh, well I'm 30 now or I'm 35. So I can't do this anymore. What am I going to do? I just always look ahead and go, what's shiny to me? What's exciting me? What piques my interest? And I simultaneously to being in where I am, I kind of start to look at that ahead. Right. Well, I feel like that's when that's where athletes get in trouble, right? As you were just mentioning, where if you're in the NBA or especially NFL, uh, particularly male athletes, it seems as though that when they're growing up, they're like, I want to be a professional athlete. And you see the money and the fame and you get sucked into that. But there's also something else that it's important to, to, to make note of. To be a professional male athlete is more competitive. Yeah. So you better yeah. focus especially if you're talking about one of the big four sports Mm -hmm. and and including men's tennis, actually I take it back because a lot of guys play tennis yeah, and a lot of guys are good. So I will say also because less females are vying for those spots. If you're pretty dedicated to your sport and you're talented enough and mentally tough enough and you have access, um, it is, I would say, I'm going to go on a limb and say it's less competitive. And the dynamics are just a little bit different. And also, you know, my conversation with female athletes and male athletes is a little bit different. And depending on what era you're coming from, why are you laughing? Well, because you're so different. Yeah, yeah, it is, right? And also it depends what era you're coming from. So if I were to talk to a female athlete who is, tomorrow I'm, I'm talking to Chanea Gwumake, who's mm-hmm. number one overall pick, you know, yeah. and she's 25. Yeah. And it's just completely different versus when, I'm talking to Julie Fatty and she kind of reminds me of you a little bit where you guys were the ceiling on what you could achieve as a professional female athlete Mm -hmm. was very low, especially at that time, you know, coming up in the eighties or nineties or early two thousands. So you didn't have a choice. And we were the most expansive too. The women right before us laid down all the groundwork. So when we came in, it was so much easier for us. I mean, Foudy on all, you know, her teams that she was on and played on World Cup, those girls, they got a lot of attention compared to anyone before them. They got paid well. My Nike contract, I mean, that was like so unusual to be paid that much money for those types of things. So in some weird way also, though, you have to remember, it was also easier for us than it is now. Because in a way now, it's more competitive. Nobody nobody has endorsements. Everybody's ambassadors. You know what that means? We're not going to pay you. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff with that. Even and brands have to deal with like 50 channels of communication. When I was coming up, you kn- you know, you had like ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, like you knew exactly how to hammer it down right. and get your message out and connect with the end user. Now they everyone's scrambling like, well, who do they connect with and who's paying attention? It's so in certain ways they have more opportunity because they can take charge, yeah. right? And in other ways, it's much harder if you're a new person. And people are consuming things in niche pockets where like, for example, let's say Foudy or the women's US soccer team in those days did an interview with the Today Show. A lot of people were watching. Now, um, it's a different deal. 
True. So no, it's so it has both, for sure. I, I totally understand what you're saying, but I don't want to take anything away from what you and Foudy and many other female athletes at that period accomplished because and I, I've been thinking about it for a while coming into this interview, I'm trying to think of another female athlete who was able to jump around and transcend so many different boundaries and in industries. And I feel like you were maybe not one of the first, because there's always somebody before that, right? But but you did a really, really good job of doing that. And I'm so interested. I think the transition that I'm most interested with you is probably how your childhood, because I know your childhood was so unique Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of um, instability, not necessarily in a bad way or or maybe it was, but, but how you were able to develop the the skills necessary to succeed later on in life. And also I think maybe becoming a mother. I I always say it was very hard for me, uh, especially, well, I was learning volleyball on the fly in college and I've talked about this quite a bit about being groomed to be a champion and the difference. So I was not groomed to be a champion. And so that mindset is very different than the mindset I had, which was, Oh, I hope I do a good job. I'm going to work harder than everybody so that I can earn it. So I deserve to be here. And, um, also I don't want to stand out. I want to be like, you know, I want to, I'm a part of a team. You know, you could even talk to me and him about this. Cause I knew her in the days when she really, it was a struggle for her to be singled out because she was on a team. I mean, I think it almost pained her and I had a different version of that. I think less in certain ways, but I think for me trying to get myself, allow myself to win and to be better than in the moment, at least on the court. Cause at that moment you have to try to be better than somebody. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was like against everything how I was feeling inside. And so I think trying to allow myself to win, not to apologize for that. You know, I, I use Carrie Walsh as an example. When Carrie Walsh steps on a volleyball court, she expects to win. She, if she doesn't win, the only person she thinks that was in charge of that was herself. I don't think it ever occurs to her that someone actually would be better than her, right? In a great way. Yeah. And so I, I really had an internal struggle with that for a really, really long time. And then when I went professional and I ha- I did have a lot of opportunities, it, it sort of alienated and isolated me from the other athletes that I was playing against. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard for me. I never showed it and it didn't keep me from pursuit, mm-hmm. but it was very difficult. And so I'd say the hardest transition was saying this is that none of us really deserve anything. That's the thing. Even if you work hard and you go like, I deserve to win. It's not the idea of deserving anything. It's the idea of I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to be as honest as I can in the work I'm doing. And I'm going to receive grace if it comes my way Mm -hmm. because life is unfair. And so I think when you've lived one way, like when I lived and when I was younger and it was hard and then sort of it started going very well. By the time I was 18, stuff was like on my side. But then when it started to go my way, I didn't know how to receive that. Uh. I didn't feel worthy of that. I didn't understand that. And then when you, what you make peace with is it's not that we're worthy or more worthy. It's that we're getting, we are receiving grace because we can go through the world and see injustices and things that are unfair everywhere, everywhere. And so I think it isn't about trying to understand that. It's about switching it and saying, okay, you know what? I'm receiving an opportunity here, so I'm going to really honor that. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do my job really well. I'm going to be polite to people. Um, I'm just going to do it the best way that I can. And that is how I can show that I appreciate the opportunity. So that those transitions were very, very, that particular transition was very hard for me. How old were you at that point? I turned pro at 22. I went to college at 17 and I fell into both. That's the other thing. No expectation on either any of those. I never expected to go and play college athletics on a scholarship. And I certainly never expected to be a professional athlete. So there, there, the other thing that's sort of interesting is like, you're like, oh, this is what's happening. And I'm building the path as I go. And you're supposed to represent something. And then you, you know, it's that imposter syndrome. Like, do I, am I really that? And all of those things. And then you get to a place where you go, yeah, no, I'm going to bust my ass and work super hard. And I will sort of honor my own code of living and how everybody else feels about it. I can't control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get meaner as you get older in that way of like, you know, you're not trying to make everybody happy, especially yeah. as a female. Yes. I'm not trying to make sure everybody's feelings are okay. I'm trying to check in with myself and say, are you doing X, Y, and Z? Are you clear about your reasons? Is it who's in charge right now? Is it you? Is it your ego? What's happening? And if I can get kind of clear on that, I'm sort of cool with letting the chips fall where they are. But that took me a really a good amount of time. I think it takes all. I think it takes everybody, including women, a very long time. Yeah, that's know. why I like thirty because thirty gets a little bit like I, I'm just going to tell you how I feel. Yes. Um. So I think that was helpful. I ended up in a relationship with Laird when I was 25, and you know, obviously Laird doesn't he doesn't battle any of that. Um, so I think that was also helpful to be around that influence of somebody who was just incredibly direct Mm -hmm. and also more confident and capable as an athlete, um, and better at what he does than I certainly would ever be at volleyball to be around somebody. I don't know if you ever had this when you went out and played tennis. Did you ever have days where you're like, I don't even know if I know how to do this. (laughs) Yeah. You ever go to throw a serve or something? But you're asking the wrong person because I am one of those people that I could, I could have literally, if I, if I ever won the U S open, the next day I could potentially be like, I don't know if I'm really good enough. That's what it, I'm that's saying. Just, I, that's just my personality. It's it's constantly doubting myself. So you're asking the wrong person. When but you- I mean, some most athletes, I mean, at some point or other, they experience like, I hope I can hit this ball or I hope I can put it where I need to put right. it or have that control. And I have asked Laird and Laird is also, by the way, the most humble person I know because he participates in these large forces. So he knows like I'm a peon, I'm a grain of sand, you know? Um, did you ever go out and think like you wouldn't be able to surf? Like you didn't know how? And he's like, no, because it's a very intimate relationship. It's a very different thing than I ever have with volleyball. You're talking somebody two, three years old, the punishment you have to take to be good at that. You better, you know, what's going on because you've taken, you've gotten lickings every which way. But surfing is a very spiritual there's a spiritual element to surfing. At least when I yes. when I when I speak to a lot of my friends who are big Californian guys, yes. you know, and but there's surfing and then like the kind of surfing Laird does, the amount of lessons, the volume of information and knowledge you must have in order to do that kind of surfing in that environment, you just you're a professor of what you're doing. Yeah. And I would say like you know, I was sort of working on my doctorates and I, I kind of felt like I floated through a lot of it. And I was like, just trying to be a good student mm-hmm. and a good soldier mm-hmm. and do it. And, um, 
and so that that transition that was a that was an interesting transition but also again unexpected it's one thing when you grow up and you go okay that's the target that's the target that's the target i wasn't that wasn't me and then um transitioning out of volleyball in certain ways i really miss competing and that high level of of like fine tuning something yeah. like just the, you get to a place sometimes where you're like, Oh, I really can get it to do what I want it to do. You know, you'd be halfway through the season. You'd be at the right weight. You wouldn't be injured. Your team would be flowing and have chemistry. It was like, Oh, that feels good. It's like tuning an instrument. Yeah. I missed that. But there was also probably a part of me that was relieved hmm. that I didn't have to like, in an environment that I felt like, because, and I put that on me, nobody put that on me that I felt like I always had to explain myself, you know, like in this way, because I did get an unusual amount of attention, yeah. but I was also doing, I would fly, like go tape an MTV show and then, then fly to Florida for my own tournament. Right. And people didn't understand also that that was, you always had to do the extra. Right. You know, it wasn't like, I just sat there. It's like, no, you have to go do the extra. And also you have to do that skill like a professional person. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I just showed up and was like, the expectation was, oh, well, because I'm good at this thing over here that no, I treated them very separate and took it serious and treated it like a different skill set and, and tried to approach it like that. But, um, it, so I think for that, I might've been a little bit relieved. And then also the other side of it, um, and then transitioning like to motherhood, <laughs> there is no transition. You just get dropped into that, you know, I know right? And, and first of all, Laird came, um, her, my oldest daughter, who's my stepdaughter, who's my oldest daughter, her mother was, is a, is a great mother. And so, uh, she was, you know, generous in that she allowed me to co-parent with her, so I had practice with her for about seven, eight years before I had my first biological child. Kind of got eased into it a little bit. Yeah. Sort of. Well, oh no, that was like, I love you. I'm having a chemical reaction. I love you. And I have to decide right now if I'm ready to like be someone's stepmom. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, because it's like, it's, it wasn't a game, but um, I don't think there's anything to prepare you for motherhood except the faith and the confidence that, you will love this person and you will do the very best that you can and you will make mistakes and um, you will make good decisions and uh, it will be, it will be the most, it will be the most humbling thing that you ever do. I used to joke like, Oh, four hour practice and go lift weights and take red eyes, man. That's child's play yeah. babies and teenagers and like, these are the life lessons because you love them so much and it's so important and it is your duty that you take a look at yourself in a real way. I mean, you don't have to, but I think you pay later. I rather pay right in the moment. If your kid inadvertently is like, you suck at this and you're sucking and you don't get it and it's wrong, that is your moment to just pay. Just do it then because you don't want them to be 30 and be like, you never listened to me. You never. That's the worst. You don't want to. Yeah. You don't want to look that down that barrel. No. And sometimes you can be like, oh, they're 10 or they're 13 or whatever. But sometimes just to be willing to look at it. It doesn't mean you have to take it all in because they say mean stuff to manipulate or work you over. Yeah. But transitioning to being a mom, 
I was, I think I was also ready. I was 33 when I first had my first, um, you know, when I had Gabe got pregnant and then, uh, Brody almost, I was in my late, I was 37. And so I think I was also ready, but, um, you know, that is such a personal experience too. I, I think when people go, well, you should do this or you should do that. I would never have the audacity to tell anyone about parenting. The only thing I always tell men, if they're, if it's a male, female relationship, if your chick has just had a baby, treat her like your girlfriend, because you, you're already like, who am I? You have a new baby. You know, listen, I was athletic. My body went back pretty quickly, but still you're just like, uh, I think I'm staying home to nurse all day. I'm not really sure. I'm so confused. And and also it feels like the natural thing to do. Yeah. You feel quiet. You know, like your brain's like, is it time to start training yet? You know, like <laughs> it's been eight days, you know, whatever the weird thing you do. Yeah. Um, but I, I think each person has to really trust themselves. I want to start from the very beginning because I'm, I'm curious about your just upbringing and our childhoods really shape not only who we are, but they, they, they influence how we behave, how we parent, how we carry ourselves. Maybe we, we role model our behavior, or maybe we see something in our parents and we're like, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to change this, you know? So you were born in California. You were born I in was born, my parents. Yeah. So my parents, uh, I, I don't think they knew each other for very long. My father's from Trinidad and my mother's from New York and they met in 1969 in California. Maybe they meant 68. I don't know. I was born right at the beginning of 70. Okay. So that's what that my, that's my assumption. <laughs> so you're born in California. Yeah. My parents were not together over, for long. Okay. I went then, to Mexico city. My mother was training dolphins in a circus and then I moved. No way. Yeah. And now she went to Mexico or you went to Mexico with her, with her. Yeah. Okay. And then when I was about two, I caught whooping cough in Mexico and, um, a ch- uh, like a teenage hangout friend of my mom's whose husband had just returned from Vietnam, who was like my mom's neighbor, like two blocks down in Long Island came to take care of me. And then I was brought to Long Island and I lived there till I was seven with that couple. And when, during that time, my father was died in a plane crash when I was five. And so, um, I moved back in with my mother who then married my stepfather, who's from Puerto Rico. So that's how I ended up down in the Caribbean, Ah, which was great for me because my, my father and that whole side of my family is West Indian. Mm. So growing up in St. Thomas, a little bit different culture, but very similar. It got me to really understand and be a part of my family's culture. Mm. Um, And listen, it was very good to grow up in the Caribbean because I got grounded into things that I really believe in, which is pretty simple things. Like Mm -hmm. if we have, if we, if we're, if we have good food and we have good friends and we work really hard and, um, and life is pretty simple. simple. Yeah. Life is very simple. simple. I'm not a, in that way, I'm not a complicated person. Mm -hmm. I, I don't need a lot of things. I'm not striving for like perfection. Living in the Midwest, I, I was born in Mexico, Missouri. Like when you live oh, wow. yeah. in an environment like that, yeah. you learn to. You don't need all the hoopla. Yeah, you know, it's not like growing up in New York City. Yeah, it's like, oh, what school to- did you go to? I'd be like, I, I should punch you in the face. Like, who cares? <laughs> like, either you're smart or you're not. Yeah, and and I appreciate like you know 
if people can excel and do that, I celebrate that. But I wasn't raised with all those Mm. sort of forms and obligations and ways of conduct and such. So the the freedom was I could do it any way that I wanted to. Mm -hmm. At the time, it seemed scary. But looking back, you go, oh, I'm allowed to put whatever I want onto the canvas because nobody has implemented their expectations on me. Mm-hmm. And so that part was amazing. And I think in a way, when you say, oh, you did all these things, it's because I didn't know not to. It was like, oh, that seems pretty interesting. Let's try that. You know, I have well, the knack for this. that's interesting because some people would never think to do so mm. because, you know, because you lived it, let's say, you know, if you lived it so-called simple life, yeah. people who come from simple upbringings yes. don't always aspire for those things because they think it's unreachable. Mm. So, and that's where well, I'm, you have I'm to dream. so, I think so you have where to did dream. your dreaming, where, where did the encouragement mm. to dream come from? What was your mother? What do you remember? What, what kind of influences, but younger than seven or eight, do you remember You know, I think it was just um, my aunt Norette, who's the lady who raised me, who had like a high school education and my Uncle Joe, like he was, he'd worked in construction and for the sanitation department. These were, these are very, um, you know, uh, I I don't want to say, you know, it's like living what we would call a sort of right you know, everyday life. Mm-hmm. And, and she they, used they to, were, you live with them in Long Island. Yeah. From two to seven. And I, listen, I, I was five feet at seven years old, tall and skinny, long blonde hair, kind of strange looking. My aunt was five feet tall, overweight. And she used to say to me, kid, you know, like you're different than us. And I, I think I understood that in a way, what I saw with them is they took what life gave them. I don't know that it occurred to them or people around them said it was okay to go, well, what else would you like to do? Hmm. Or what else do you think is possible? I think they just went, oh, this is life and we'll get jobs and we'll buy a house and we'll do it that way. Hmm. And I think the strangeness of my size and appearance also maybe put me in a place where I thought, well, I'm never really going to fit in. I probably knew that early, like 13, 12, 13, I was six feet at 12 I'm not going to fit in. I'm not going to have a leave it to the beaver family life. We know that. So I just think it was about not having any uh, limitations or hardwiring mm-hmm. about the way it's supposed to be. I think it's just it was about like, well, how do I feel? And growing up in the Caribbean, you're big on instincts. When you have to take care of yourself, you're very, you know, you mm-hmm. pay attention. You can see people and read things very quickly. And... Um, and also I had, besides my aunt and Uncle Joe, always along the way, people that were friends of my mother that were impactful. And then when I moved to Florida, I had a basketball coach that was really great. I ended up living with the principal of Keswick Christian High School my senior year. He let me come to the school my junior year. My mom was not going to come back. Him and his wife with two young children said, oh send her here. Then my college coach, Cecil Renaud. So what I would say also, I always had peripherally some very loving and strong adults that said, we're going to help this kid out. So I had that all along the way. So it's really important to identify. It wasn't me like, I'm so brave and marching through. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, I had people that stuck their neck out for me that impacted me in in a real way. That's that's unbelievable. But then... 
there were definitely role models in your life. There's no question about that. Yeah. And you had a support system. But the amount of change, because just the sheer fact of like moving mm-hmm. is can be life-changing. And for some kids, depending on their personality and their dynamics, it can be dramatic, mm-hmm. you know, but to go from California to Mexico, mm-hmm. West Indies, Long Island, mm-hmm. back to, you know, Caribbean mm-hmm. and then to Florida. And then you went to a conser- super conservative Christian school, mm-hmm. but how were you able to navigate? Because those are very different cultures and environments. Do you remember mm-hmm. how tough it was or, or did it seem just like run in the mill? Yeah. I'm, I think I'm all of those things. I think we're all, all of those things. That's the thing. I think we're all Islanders. I think we're all mm-hmm. New Yorkers. I think we're all from the South. Um, I just had the chance to develop all the sides of all of them. Um, because it was, hey, am I connecting with this person? So whether they're Puerto Rican or St. Thomian or from Long Island or whatever, are we connecting? And so that was my litmus culture test. My culture was like, how, how do I feel about, you know, the, the people? How did you know to connect? Because I, I've talked to different, you know, and talking to so many different people and athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and people that are, some of them have had to move mm-hmm. and they were pivotal moments that were really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think coming into this interview, I, I really wanted to dive into your childhood because I was so curious about it because I, I found that because of your tra- trajectory, your athletic career, my non-trajectory like, trajectory, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, your trajectory, um, your upward <laughs> dynamic firework, um, career, I was wondering what shaped her or was she just different? Because I've, I've definitely run into those people where I've, I've talked to athletes who have come out of Compton and it's like, you know what you were, you, it was your role models, but you were cut from a different cloth, just smarter than a lot of other people, you know? Okay. I'm going to give you like a weird, really weird reference. Cause yeah. it seems like it makes sense. So the day I was driving my car, I took one of my kids to school and um, Riza was being interviewed by Joe Rogan. You know, the RZA? Yeah. Okay. Um, this guy has an accent. It's sort of New York. It feels like there's a splash of Southern in there. Smart is smart. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to the concepts and what he's talking about, you go, oh, that's a smart person. And I think, you know, I'm not sitting here going, I'm a smart person. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I was just born the way I was born mm-hmm. with then the environment, having all these things helping form, uh, or further develop that and then making choices along the way, recognizing like, you know, that you're fortunate and not taking it for granted. So I think if you say, Hey, why have you kept going on and on and on? It's because early I was able to say, it's not that you're so good. It's that you're really fortunate. And Mm -hmm. so take care of that. And so there's a difference and we can get confused in thinking it's us and I'm so smart and I'm so talented and I'm so strong versus, okay, I might have a little of this and of that. And I'm so fortunate that I get to be in this moment and I get to be the one who gets to occupy this space. And what that does, I believe, is that if you take care of that, you get those chances again and again. If you abuse it or you don't recognize it, it gets passed on to someone else. Hmm. And so I've always had that. And I've never had the desire 
to do things for attention. I've never made a move in that way because I'm like, well, that's popular or that's what everybody's doing. I always checked in with myself and thought, well, is that what, does that feel good to me and who I am and where I think I'm heading as a person? And then, um, and also, Hey, does that make sense for the big picture? Hmm. You know, I think that that's sometimes important to ask ourselves like, Hey, is this part of something that's going to go towards this, this life that I'm painting? And, um, cause it's a little bit like wasting time if you, if you don't do that. So, you know, time is very, very precious. And, and I think I've always sort of kind of looked at stuff and thought, well, it doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the distinction about, <clears throat> I'm not necessarily good at these things. I'm paraphrasing here, but, yeah. but you're fortunate. And there's a difference because when you shift the perspective on saying I'm fortunate, there's like a layer of humility underneath that where it's, I'm lucky to have these things. So I'm going to take advantage of them as opposed to somebody who would internalize some of the gifts that they might've been given and identify with that. And they lose the plot, right? That group, because also everyone around them is willing to tell them that story. And so again, coming from a small platform, I didn't have a group that coddled me that way, nor do I like that. It makes me very uncomfortable when people try to coddle me or like make that I'm special. It makes me very uncomfortable. So I think in terms of your family, you're saying anyone, you didn't coddle, no one coddled you. Yeah. But, and I don't like, I'm married to a person who tells me the truth. <laughs> and if I was like, I'm a princess, he'd be like, you're crazy. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, did you say I'm special? You know? So I think it's, I think it's also saying, I'm going to surround myself with people that are going to really love me and tell me straight. But also, you know how many talented people there are in the world Mm. who are smart and beautiful and athletic and genius, and either they don't get the opportunity or whatever, or they got in their own way or whatever the million reasons are. So I think if you think, oh, I'm the only one, um, you're wrong. I think when you recognize, oh, (laughs) I got into this position, I'm going to really take care of it. I mean, I think this, this conversation is like on a, on a broader sense, but if we narrow it down mm-hmm. to sports, mm-hmm. we can connect the dots with athletes who struggle and they internalize some of the gifts that they have. And they say, I am the best. There is nobody else like me out there. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. I am talented. I'm more athletically gifted. Where it's just like the shift in perspective that you were talking about. It's like, well, yeah, I'm smart and yeah, I'm tall and beautiful, mm-hmm. whatever but I'm fortunate, but this is not all I am. Okay. But if I'm a 15 year old boy and I'm from, you know, some project in somewhere in the city, maybe I need to feel like I am the best. Cause maybe mm. that's my only way out. But then we get to a certain place where we mm. have to then hopefully start to expand. So I think sometimes there's a Smart, place yeah. for that. Yeah. If you and I are going to war, then we like, you know, I better think like, I'm going to destroy everyone. I'm going to kill everybody. You better have that mentality. So there's like this weird line Mm -hmm. where I would never sell an athlete the bill. Like you should be grateful. You should be grateful. But maybe right in this moment, depending on where you are in your development or your time Mm -hmm. on your story, you might need to believe because maybe not one other person is telling you you're Mm -hmm. the best. True. So I think, but certainly for professional Mm -hmm. athletes, it would be good to go. It's a funny thing though, because if you think I'm the best, does that help you beat people? I don't know. Like if you're a tennis player, you're out in war alone. 
Maybe yeah. in that moment you have to be like, this guy sucks. I'm going to, I'm going to crush him. It's so, it's so based on the player. The, so, the individual. but maybe when we get off that square, whatever that square is, and we get into life again, we just step back for a moment. Yeah. That's all. So I think it's, it's rack focus, right? It's going in and out and, uh, it's, it's believing it can happen. It's dreaming. It can happen. It's willing it to happen. It's focused that it can happen. And then when we're off the square, that we say, and I'm so very, I'm so very grateful. And when I walk around in the world, I'm going to show that by the way I conduct myself and treat others and things like that. But okay, if we get on the square, maybe you need that because hmm. it's hard. That's yeah. the other thing. Professional sports, it sucks in that way. It's hard. You're getting your ass beat. You're injured. You have to perform. People criticize you. So within that, you have to be kind of tough. And you better believe in yourself. So I, I understand the other side too. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. believe me, I've had internal dialogue when I'm on the court. Like, I'm going to kill you. You know what I mean? And it, not in the real way, but yeah. like, or you're not going to beat me today. You know, and when I don't have that, or I'm like, God, she's really big and she jumped so high. I'm done. I think it's, you're right. There, there has to be an exchange and an ability to float in and out of the space. Yeah. And I think when you're in their space and you're training, you have to have that mentality of you like, do. I'm the best. You have to be focused and hyper-focused and all yeah. that jazz. But I think it's more of when you're off the court or field, mm-hmm. that's where the perspective It's like, okay, let's, let's expand the focus a little bit more yeah. and try to be a little bit more objective. Well, and that's going to impact your bigger story. Yeah. Your ability to do that will then uh, impact your friendships, your relationships, your work life. Like that ability then impacts everything else that's off the square, which the square only lasts so long. We can only be on the field or the court or whatever for so many years, but we can take all those lessons and all the things that we learned that helped us develop and redirect that at anything we choose next. And I think that's the thing that athletes don't realize what a gift that is to them is like, hey, if you can do that, you can take all that it took to do that and do something else. Mm. And you also have to be willing to start at the bottom, be humble, <laughs> do it yourself, show up on time. Like if you have a meeting, you have to show up on time. You don't get to just float in whenever you want or do whatever you want. So I think mm. it's it's sort of all, it's that vault. It's all of it coming together, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you, you seem like somebody who is right personality, right soul, if you will, in the right body. And oh, I really, s- <laughs> Fantastic. I've always felt like a mismatch. <laughs> well, because I say that because, um, it, it's happened when I'm talking to basketball players for oh, the most part, yeah. you know, because not everybody and there was one athlete in particular where he was very tall mm-hmm. like over six five i'm talking mm-hmm. like seven feet mm-hmm. but he's a gentle giant and mm-hmm. people would expect him to be a certain way because mm-hmm. you're tall and they expect you to be authoritative and commanding on the basketball court maybe even off of it but he mm-hmm. was internally he was an introvert mm-hmm. and somewhat shy and reserved. And so that didn't always match well with his body, but, and also, especially, you know, going through a growth spurt can be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're 12 years old and you're standing up, how tall were you at 12? You're six. six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then by the time you're 15, you're like yeah. six, three or yeah. something. And are mean. Yeah, yeah. What kinds of things did you experience going through a growth spurt 
Um, and did you feel comfortable or uncomfortable standing out? I was, I never wanted to be, I never want, I didn't mind that I was tall. My mother's very tall and, um, I never personally had a problem with it. It did get tiring that, uh, people always commented or you go places and especially once you start going through puberty and then people start staring at you or men much older than you start staring at you cause you seem older. Um, I never really tripped out that much about it. Hmm. Um, and it was great because I think we all need something that makes us a little weird or strange um, to help us kind of ask ourselves, like, who am I? Like, do I have to have the haircut the same as that girl <laughs> who's cute and five seven, and um, I can't wear the clothes that she's wearing that are on, you know, popular? So, like, who am I? And then what you start to do is it liberates you from any of that defining you. You know, I, I think the only thing, my hope is the things that define me are, are my actions and my thoughts. And so I think that was very, very helpful in getting to that quick. And you got to that pretty quickly when you're a very teenager? quick, really super quick. Yeah. I mean, I always tried a little bit to take the square and shove it in the circle, but you know, it never really worked. <laughs> it was just not a good look. You're like, is that, was that, is that what that style is supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell? So, you know, I always, of course I made some attempts, but. In terms of that template where they, mm -hmm. they gave you the permission to just be different and be you mm -hmm. because that, that's that, that insight, that wisdom is like, I think maybe the best wisdom and, mm -hmm. and philosophy that, that anybody could adopt and live through. Because mm -hmm. if you can adopt that and learn how to really live through that. Yeah you will be absolutely unapologetic about who you are and yeah. you don't give a shit about anybody because right. you don't play the comparison game. Yeah, no, so, that's bad. Well, I think sports does that. You know, this playing with girls. And plus I was on a team. When, you, when you're playing with like big, strong, dynamic, athletic, powerful, beautiful women, you learn to celebrate them and their differences. If you sat and tried to compare you'd be dead. Not to mention when you're on a team, you kind of go, okay, what are you good at? What am I good at? Okay. Mm. Let's work that out and let's do that together. Mm. And then we'll be better together. You know, when one and one is three, then that is the power of like all of it. I think it was that, I think my coach from college really somehow subtly helped me, uh, do all the different things that I was exploring doing. And then reminded me that my teammates, if they had the opportunity would do the same because I was unsure and felt bad for that. And, um, and then again, I bring Laird into it because Laird is, he definitely does his own thing and he always has, mm -hmm. you know, he grew up white and blonde at the end of the road on the North shore of Kauai. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't really the popular, uh, you know, ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he became very good at surfing and then was like, oh, I'm going to try new surfing. And people were like, well, that's not surfing. And he's like, I think it's surfing. And then he did a different kind of surfing. And then now he does another kind of surfing. And I, I've, I've really oftentimes used him as a resource of like, honor yourself, do what you really feel and trust that because, um, you know, what are we doing here? really. And you really genuinely will feel more fulfilled if you make your own mistakes, if you, if you do things that are from within you. And, uh, cause even if you're successful, but you were 
doing what you thought you were supposed to do versus what really what you wanted to do is that success. And so I think it also helped in my young adult life. I did partner up with somebody that reinforced Hmm. that idea of like, like really, I think he cares so little of what people think. I mean, I think he Mm -hmm. cares about what the people he loves think greatly, but, but he's unafraid. He's fearless. His and... ability to just be like, oh, because <laughs> he's been criticized quite a bit. I mean, I've been criticized too, and you just learn like, oh, okay. okay. Have you been criticized though? Sometimes, sure. About what? Oh my goodness, I get criticized for, um, you know, when I was younger, it was like, oh, the printing girl against the shoe contracts, and. Um, you know, but is that criticism or is that just jealousy? I don't know. It feels the same when you're getting it. Yeah. That sounds more like jealousy. I've called people on the telephone. What? To tell, to tell mom about? Not tell them off. I had a female reporter, a very prestigious woman, one time criticized me on national TV. And I called her and I said, you know, it's a bummer. It's like, I'm doing the best I can. And you and I have the same goals, which is probably to elevate women and women in sports. Cause mm-hmm. she was like a jockey and you're bagging me on sports. But if you did any homework, you would know like. I work hard. I practice hard three years in a row as offensive player of the year in my league. So that doesn't, they didn't give me that because my ponytail was on correctly. And I go, it's just kind of a drag. I think it's part of anything. If you're going to do anything in life, mm-hmm. you can say, let's save the puppies. Someone's mm-hmm. going to criticize you and say, what about the children? So I just think people have to get that real quick. Like if you're going to do anything in life, anything at all, and try to do it at a high level, um, not everyone's going to be like, great. Mm-hmm. And I always take it like you're on the right track. And again, that goes back to the original code. If I am honoring my code, who I think I'm really trying to be, if I can like brush my teeth in the morning and go, I'm cool with you. You get us, you still have work to do, but I get where you're at. I then I think that's all we can really hope for. Mm-hmm. If you have something that you think that you find that you, you like and maybe even love and that you could be good at it. I just think you understand you're willing to pay the price mm-hmm. to pursue that. However, we still have to keep looking at ourselves as human beings all along the way. Because if you want to talk about the ultimate transition, it's transitioning out of, we talked about it earlier, identities. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had people say, weren't you Gabrielle, that volleyball player? I was like, well, actually, funny enough, I'm still Gabby. I'm here. Obviously, you see me right now looking at you. <laughs> and that is something I did but that is not who I am. And maybe some of the ways of that I am are expressed in that athlete or in that business person or that parent or that wife. But at the end, it's about, for me personally, the liberation was in saying, I'm, I don't want to have any identity. I don't want to be, I want to be liberated from that so I can really keep listening to who I am right now today and who I want to be so that I'm not restricted by what I think is the expectation. Cause that's what happens, right? You go, well, I should show up and I should be that. And people expect me to be this, forget all that. Who are you as a human being? And, and you know, who do you hope to be and just do that. And the hardest transition I think for any athlete is to forego that identity. I think it is so difficult. That's why I was always fascinated with Steffi Graf. Cause I was like, how are you that badass? And you just seem like you want to have nothing to do with that identity. Mm-hmm. I was always in awe of that with her. Cause it almost felt like she was free mm-hmm. because she wasn't like, did you see me? Have you noticed me? I'm here. Do you want to interview me? I want to be interviewed. It's like, 
and she was is so exceptional. So I, I think if you ask me if athletes transition or people, it's like guys that are CEOs, you know, it's like, so what do you do? You know, it's my favorite. It's like, you mean, who am I? Yeah. Because like I said, smart is smart. And smart doesn't mean you had to go to Harvard. You could just be smart. And you can be nowadays, especially, I will say one great thing with technology is like, you can be self-taught. Mm. You can listen to a bunch of different things that you're interested in. And so my hope for all athletes would be to really enjoy it and and put all they have into it. So when it is in the rearview mirror, they're not sort of having regret or pain that it's over. But believe in that formula, believe in themselves that they can take the things that they've learned and apply it into something new, but they just have to put the effort. Right. You know, and that takes, by the way, that humility mm-hmm. and a little bit of thought. Like you have to be thoughtful. You have to think about things and you and have creative. to ponder yeah. and try and fail and and all those things. But I, I liken it to like going to practice. And I always said, like, your coach wouldn't say to you, so listen, your down the line shot is perfect. Let's do that all practice. No, they'll say your cut shot sucked. I'll give you your statistics from the last game. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing. <laughs> and then when you have the ability to take whatever it is and go, I'm going to work on that, that weakness, that thing, I think that can help you navigate almost any scenario in life. Yeah, you would. You, you know what I mean? You go like, I would, you would think so. You would hope so. And I yeah. guess it's, it's one of the things that I'm really, it's why I created a show. And, and it's one thing that I'm fascinated about is why certain athletes can take the skills that they've learned and developed 15, 20, 30 years over the course of their mm-hmm. career and transfer it to other realms while other athletes are really struggle to do that. A lot do. Right. And I, I feel like, okay, Magic Johnson maybe excluded as well as like a couple others is you have to develop outside interests of your sport. If you think going to clubs or being famous is going to cut it in the long run, it probably isn't Um, because being famous is not really about you. It's about other people. So it's really about asking yourself, what do I want to do with my time? And and also, I feel like sometimes the higher people can go in their sport, so more money, more fame, the harder that transition can be. Because mm-hmm. everywhere they go, people are like, oh, you're that guy, you're that girl, you're that guy. And, um, but like m- sort of encouraging them to remind themselves that like, it's your life. It isn't their life of how you should be in their life. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's, it is your life. And, um, and, you know, so far that I know, you sort of only get one pass at it. And and I do think overall, it's probably easier to make the transition as a female than a male. Yeah, First of all, our sports are smaller. Um, you know, we by nature are more sort of, by nature, we're going to be more versatile in a certain way. Yep. Because we have to be. Yep. Agreed. And um, that's not a criticism of, of, of men, if I, you know, and, uh, and also I think that... Uh, it's almost like you have to make a conscious fight. Mm-hmm. So if a guy plays in the NBA for 10 years, it's like he's almost going to have to make more of an effort, certainly, than someone like me. Mm-hmm. When you didn't start organized sports and volleyball, right, until junior year in high school? I dabbled a little bit, and then I really got involved after my junior year when I moved to St. Pete. Did you immediately fall in love with it, or do you think did you just kind of fall into it? Mm-hmm. I fell into, into it. it. I was 6'3". And I, 
It gave me a family. You know, it was a part of something. I had a reason to be so tall. You know, people, that's how, you know, rocket scientists, some people are, they'll tell a 16 year old girl, oh, are you, you're 6'3"? Do you play basketball or volleyball? Yeah. Oh, that's why you're so tall. Yeah. That's why I'm so tall. You know what I mean? I remember being a kid being like, wow. Hmm. And you're the grown up, right? <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, I think it gave me a family, a tribe. And it's so critical at that time in life to be a part of something. And, um, and then it went from there. I think I really, really liked the environment, the hard work, mm -hmm. the discipline, not being able to do something, learning to do it. Um, that's really exciting to me. I get excited when I coach people in the pool or whatever, and they can't do it. And then they can, that even excites me. But you don't, do you play volleyball at all? You, you don't, No, right? Cause don't I'm not, that. my brain knows what to do, but my body isn't tuned up that way. And so I think I would just be pissed. People go like, wouldn't it be fun? I go, I don't think so. No, I played till about four years ago with a bunch of, I used to play okay, with men. Okay, so four years ago. Okay. Yeah, I am 40. That's very recent. I am 49. I, that's good enough, right? That's, that's good. I mean, 45? That's, that's you played good. until 45? That's pretty good. Yeah, my knee just really hurt. And then I, but I played with men for like probably the last 10 years or so. And I, I did play once, a few tournaments when I was 40. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I just. I think that um, I, it's not that I don't miss it. I think that everything sometimes has a season, but it's different, right? Like Laird surfs, but it's, he has to, and he does it at a very, very high level. For me, volleyball, I have other things that I want to, I want to do. Surfing you can also do by yourself too. That's much yeah, you're easier. Yeah, in nature and, and, yeah. and you don't have to call people. He yeah. actually has to call people though. They have to tow each other around oh, and stuff, well, but, but still yeah. it's like, I just think, and also I just, I don't know. I feel like letting go of that and allowing the new identities, the new things, the new pursuits to come. Cause when we hold on to the old, we don't make room for this new, this new ex form of expression. And, um, one thing I would tell all athletes too, though, when you're in it, when you're still in it, start looking. And why I say this is people want to help champions. Like, what do you want to do? Hey, what are you into? What would you like to do? Sometimes I think it's harder when you're done. And so if, if I was a guy or girl who was actively playing, even though you have a small off season, if there's something that kind of you think you're curious about, find out because everybody will help you. They just will. And so take advantage of that because what they don't realize is the amount of access that they have based on their occupation, utilize it. There's been a lot of athletes that have offered that same advice to others because they, they have often said, I wish I would have taken more advantage of the opportunities and developing relationships and expanding my network while I was playing. Yeah. And because it's you hard. Don't have that, you don't have that perspective. Well, it takes not, so much energy to do what you're doing it does, yeah. week after week and competing and all these things. However, I would just whisper that mm -hmm. as an invitation, mm -hmm. um, unless you're like, you know, you have other ideas, which is totally great. And that was the thing. I was always doing other things while I was playing. And uh, honestly, volleyball was almost like, oh, that's just her badge of credibility. That's really what it became. It really jump started you. It, it launched you to do so many other things because at Florida State, was your junior year probably your biggest? Was that your when you started to really become a national oh. icon? What, what age, what year 
Because I, I, I was looking at your, and this is the only time I'm going to bring my notes, but like 1989, which is when you were a junior. Was that when you were a junior? I was a junior, yeah. Okay. I was like trying to remember. That's when so you, you won the Dodge National Athletic Award for Most Inspiring College Athlete. You were Rolling Stone named you as one of the wonder women of oh. sport. Elle named you as one of the five most beautiful women in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's got to be a crazy thing when you're on campus and you're doing all these other things. Yeah, but I'm not going to send – even then, yeah, I was 19. I did not send out the vibration of like I want people flittering around me. Did people – were people aware? On campus? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what – was that the year when everything started to kind of build up and, and blow up? Yeah, my sophomore year started to roast up pretty good too. The end of my sophomore year, it was he, you know, it was rolling, and I, it's not that I never paid it any mind, but I, it was my job, mm. and that's the other thing too. Besides it, you being fortunate, I was very well aware of like it's my job. It's like when I go to work today, you know, now if I go to let's say a shoot and you, I show up and I show up on time, and then I, okay, please and thank you. People are like you guys are amazing. I'm like. Oh, the expectation is low. It's like, I'm doing my job. This is the part. This is why this is the thing I do and I bring. So I think I've always viewed it that way. Even when I was super young, like, oh, you're playing that role and I'll play this role. So I'll do this job and you do that job, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think it also is a different thing when your job is in front of a camera or in front. But the only difference is the job's just in front. Right. Other people doing jobs, hard jobs, important jobs everywhere. They're just behind. So I think it's, again, about perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, you seem like somebody who is very comfortable with being uncomfortable in the sense of you love to create, you love change a little bit. You love that the freedom to have a little bit of an adventure because you, you have yeah. so many things going on. I get bored. Your- I do get bored and um, things take time. That's the other thing I've learned as an entrepreneur. So I've been doing businesses since my late 20s. And what you realize, too, if you have an idea, start now because it's going to take about five years. That's the other thing. I'm into that. That I've learned. And it's not like, why didn't this happen? It's like, oh, no, yeah, this takes a minute. So I think there's another part of me that's learned that part of it. So I'm always like, and again, not moving in a in an unorganized or frenetic way, because that doesn't get anything done, but being sure, creating a strategy and a pathway and then saying systematically, how am I going to get that done and adjusting and learning as you go, adapting quickly. And, uh, and I think that that keeps me interested Mm -hmm. because I'm interested in being different, hopefully in a year than I am today. (laughs) You know, I, I always say, especially as a female, right? Like I'm never going to be younger. So is it possible I could be smarter or I could be more relaxed or I could be less reactionary or more direct? You know, it's like, could I develop these other things to a higher level? What last bit of advice do you have to offer athletes using your story and your experience in terms of how, how an athlete is able to just kind of what you were talking about, use everything that they have built up in their athletic career mm-hmm. and make it last longer mm-hmm. so they can live off of that. And I'm not just talking financially, obviously yeah, just to build a legacy and, and really just do the things that you you've done with your career. Well, okay. So it would be like if they thought that uh, they went to a great party and they, it was at this location and then um, they left and they thought, Oh, I, 
I left the party. It's for them to realize that when they go into sport, you know, Tom Brady said when he got wheeled off the field with his knee injury years and years ago, before he was through the tunnel, the whistle blew and they started. So no one is bigger than the game, right? Period. So I think it's realizing though, that your party and the party that you is your life can always be that because you're the common denominator and not to equate that you have to be in the NFL and not that you have to be in the NFL or the NBA to be at the party. You're the party and the party might look different. It might become a wine and cheese one. It might be kind of quiet. It might be a book one and you might be having intellectual ideas. It may not be the full on, you know, got to go. Everyone's going to talk about it for a year, but it's them realizing that everywhere they go, they are the asset. Meaning don't be afraid to think, well, I can only play basketball or I'm only good if I'm a football player. It's like do a little bit of soul searching and say, well, who else am I and what else do I think I like? And by the way, if they come up with nothing, then that's something to look at too and go, okay, well, maybe I could talk to some people I trust and say, when you see me, what do you think I'm good at? Or what do you think I would like trying and doing? Because I think sometimes people close to us, if they're honest with us, they can see things about us that we can't see ourselves. But to have the confidence to let go of the past, because if you're going to move robustly and fully and wholly into the future and make that road full and wide, you have to let go. And when you do like one foot there and you still, you know, acting certain ways that you acted before, it's like you'll never get to move on all the way. You won't get full flight. And um, I think if, if they could have that faith, because that's it does. A, it's a leap of faith. It's scary. And it's all scary, like I was saying. So like, go for it. You know, it's like, um, but to but to know that your worth isn't actually that you're a champion or that you've won X championships or that you won this award or you were named that your worth is who you are as a person and what you're contributing ultimately, because those other things that winning and stuff, that's actually for us. That's for the individual. That was like your thing. Like, you know, this is your reward, but your value, your being a champion person is about your output and what you're giving. I do have one more thing to say to athletes, which is this. If you ever got to play in college or in the pros, it's a miracle. You've been a part of a miracle. The statistics are unbelievable. And so I think sometimes it isn't about to obsess over the miracle. It's to value the miracle and appreciate the miracle, but to recognize you've been a part of a miracle. And so there's actually no reason why can't you be part of other miracles? And so I always remind them because I think we're around so many people that are doing that too. So you go, oh, it's not a big deal. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a one in 2% and 3% deal. And so kind of when you're going forward, be like, oh no, I've been part of miracles. Miracles happen. Well, before any of your kids and husband and anybody else gives you a ring, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for schlepping all the way up to Malibu. Yeah. Thank you for having us. And I I love your your house. But more importantly, I love all the pictures that you guys have all over the place. So you know why I put them up? I reinforced my kids. I'm like, oh, no, we're happy. We're a happy family. Just look at the pictures. Can you see it? You're not sure? Look. Gabby. 
Ruby obviously has an amazing story, but the best part for me that day was getting a behind the scenes look into her life as a mother. In the four hours I spent at her house, anytime any one of her three daughters asked or called for something, she immediately responded. And her daughters called multiple times during the interview. (laughs) And although it did break up the flow of the conversation at times, I actually didn't mind it at all because as a fairly new mother myself with a 17-month-old, it gave me a good glimpse into how you can do it all and how you can put your family first while pursuing your professional endeavors, especially from the perspective of a woman. A big warm thank you to Gabby for not only sitting down with me for a number of hours to share her story, but opening up her home to all of us. And a big thank you to you, the listener. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at prim underscore and let me know your thoughts on today's episode. Until next time. 